0: Just a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that you've called us to be your disciples. And yet you've called us to be disciples in a very complex, troubling, and at times hostile world. So we pray that you'd take my lips and mouth and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them, and take our lives and live through them to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So it's a great privilege for me to have this chance to talk. I think we've all had a long day. You're sitting there feeling, gosh, it's hot. And uh, I hope that um, this won't be too much of an anticlimax at the end of what's been a stimulating day. But I'm going to try and look just a little bit at some of the big ideas that are going on in the contemporary world and then look at some practical responses um, and practical ways in which we can live out integrated lives using the biblical faith, the biblical text as our guide. I I feel a great sense of inadequacy uh, giving this talk. There are many people here who have... vastly more experienced than I do in different areas of of living as biblical Christians. And also, of course, this is the church and the place in which Uncle John Stott uh, preached and taught. And he uh, modeled, he both taught about the integrated Christian life, but he also modeled it. He, in his own personal integrity, tried so hard to live a personal life which was utterly integrated in every aspect of it, which was submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Uh, I came to this church as a medical student in 1972 and uh, was inspired by many teachers and preachers, but particularly by John Stott, And I've had the privilege of his being uh, a friend and somebody who's walked alongside me and who inspired and encouraged me and sometimes rebuked and challenged me uh, for the time nearly 40 years from 1972 until he was called to glory just this August. And um, it was he really who who challenged me and encouraged me to stay in the world of medicine and to use it as uh, a place in which to serve serve Christ. And uh, I trained as a junior doctor in London and have then worked mainly at UCL, uh, the country's first entirely atheistic university dedicated to rationalism and the scientific values of the Enlightenment. Um, and uh, that's the place where I've worked both as a, as a doctor, caring for, for babies particularly, and uh, as an academic doing medical research in the area of brain damage. And then increasingly getting involved in the ethical debate I found that I was in the midst of an ethical maelstrom of issues related to abortion and to technology and the survival of premature babies and uh, and then increasing the other ethical issues in in the in the world of medicine and biotechnology so I've also been uh, over years on, on the board of several organizations represented here one of which is the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity uh, I was actually a founder member of the board there, I was, was, came on uh, to represent young people, which uh, for some reason they don't seem to think that I can carry on this role, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't see the problem at all. Uh, I'm also on the, uh, the board of the Kirby Lang Institute for, Contempor- for uh, Christian Ethics um, and the Christian Medical Fellowship, and would commend all three of those organizations as well as the many others that are active here. So what are the contemporary forces in our world which make living an integrated life difficult? Because the honest truth is and I think we would all of us who've tried it would say it is very difficult to be an integrated Christian in today's world. It almost seems as though everything in the world is trying to prevent us to do this. Everything is forcing us to compartmentalization. Or to what John Stott sometimes calls spiritual schizophrenia, where we live in two completely isolated compartments. We all know how easy it is just to flick from one mode to another. It's almost like we have a spiritual mode and we have a work mode, a secular mode. And when we go to the the worship service, we're in spiritual mode and we speak spiritual language. And then we go on to the ward round or whatever your workplace happens to be and click you switch the switch, and all of a sudden, the language changes, the thinking, the thought process changes. It's a completely different compartmentalized way of living. So why, why is that? Well, much of the professional secular world is profoundly hostile to Christian thinking. And I think a lot of it is the machine, the concept of the machine. I think machine thinking is, is almost universal in the secular world. And, of course, there are uh, people like Richard Dawkins. This is always a quotable person. We are all machines built by DNA whose purpose is to make more copies of the same DNA. This is exactly what we are for. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for living. Now, that's an extreme version. But machine thinking has penetrated the whole of the secular world. And it goes along very closely with the worldview of scientific materialism. In the end, reality consists of matter and energy and the scientific laws which govern their interaction. Any appearance of purpose, of meaning or significance is ultimately illusory. What has happened is that over the last 200 years, the values of the European Enlightenment have really been, become triumphant. And uh, although postmodernism has had a flirtation in certain areas of life, it's interesting. I was looking at the networks uh, list of networks and trying to work out where postmodernism would have would have would have reared. Well, uh, the only one I thought was likely would be in the area of the. the the arts and the media, but actually, in, in most areas of life, it is the triumph of modernism, the old-fashioned modernism of the European Enlightenment. In all the, quote, serious areas of life, like technology, healthcare, economy, environment, science, law and order, business, it's the modernist perspective that has triumphed. And it's about mechanisms, it's about processes, it's about rules, regulations, control, outcomes. And this is all the machine. It's the machine thinking. And it's interesting that like in the world of healthcare, it's not just the understanding of the human body as a machine, but it's also the understanding of hospitals or provision of healthcare as mechanical. It's all about optimizing efficiency and effectiveness. And the same is true about social thinking, that societies and cities are really machines which enable us and we think about the rules and the mechanisms that govern them and how we can optimise outcomes and so on. In the very understanding of what it means to be a human being, it seems to me that this is an area of attack. Um, In traditional thinking and, and in biblical thinking, these three categories of being are quite separate There are human beings who are unique on the planet and made in God's image. There are animals who are related to us but who are are different. And then there are machines. There are things that are created, artifacts created by human beings. And in in thinking, those are are different. But what is happening in in the world of thought is that the boundaries between these categories are blurring. So there is an animal-human confusion. What's the difference between human beings and primates? Uh, aren't we all the same? We're, we're all the same, really? What's the, is a human being is just an animal, isn't it? There's no difference, ultimately. just got a bit of extra brain tissue. And on the other hand, what's the difference between a human being and a machine? I mean, human beings are just like information processors. They have the same kind of... The, the, the brain is just a computer made out of carbon instead of silicon. Uh, so there's a, there's a m- machine-human confusion and the distinctiveness of what it means to be human is under, is under enormous attack in our society. And because it's human beings who are made in the image of God, it seems to me that that's also part of the spiritual battle, that the evil one hates the distinctiveness of what it means to be human and therefore is determined in some way to mar, to blur, to confuse what it means to be human. Just one example in, in the area of medicine. This is a, taken from a, a student uh, textbook for medical students. And it compares a brain cell, a neuron, on top of a microprocessor. So, so this is taken under a mic- microscope. And it says, basically, we can understand the way that the brain cell works by understanding the way that the computer works. But hang on a minute. Who created that computer? Answer, human beings. And ultimately, the human brain. But the quest to understand what the human brain is uh, is the quest for self-transcendence. We wish to understand ourselves by the machines that we've made. And, and this quest particularly to understand the human brain, I suspect in the future it's going to be something which is going to affect lots of us. This is the rise of neuroscience. And it's affecting economics. It's affecting marketing. It's affecting employment practice. It's going to affect the law. And it's going to affect... Uh, our understanding of religious and religious beliefs, our understanding of morality, many different areas. Ultimately, people are saying it's all about the brain, it's all about processing, it's all about how the machine works. This is just a modern version of idolatry, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 44 talks about the tree in the forest, and the person t- chops down a tree in the forest, half of the wood he burns in the fire, and from the rest he makes a God. Then he bows down to it and worships, save me, you are my God. This is just a modern version of idolatry. We take the things, the artifacts, the things we have made, and they become the things that actually we, we worship. Isaiah goes on, they know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. Their minds are closed so they cannot understand. Another essential uh, element of the Enlightenment is is what philosophers call the fact-value distinction. That there's a distinction between facts, the things that are derived by science and by study and by rationality, and values. The idea is that facts are public, they are uncontestable, and they are what unite us. They are the way that things are. But values are private, they're contestable, they're potentially socially divisive. They're a matter of personal opinion, a matter of choice. And where does Christianity come? Where does it come firmly on the side of values? It's a personal opinion. It should be pushed into the private arena. It has no place in the public square one of the things I've noticed in, in teaching uh, ethics to medical students is that increasingly medical students are not so interested in discussing the morality of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and evil. They just want to know the rules. Tell me the rules. Tell me what I can do and tell me what I can't do. Tell me what I need to do to stop getting into trouble. And isn't that such a feature of our modern society? Because when in a, in a pluralistic society we can no longer agree on right and wrong, then the only thing that we can that will save us is the rules. We have to find out what the rules are, and then we can follow them. and And so the discussion is increasingly about procedures, about regulation, about checkups, about because we can't really be, to talk about right and wrong, to talk about good and evil is seen as divisive. And therefore, of course, if you dare to raise these issues, you're seen as somebody who is somehow. Uh, Rocking the boat, creating division, creating discord. So scientific materialism is what some people call a totalizing worldview. It has no space for competing ideologies. And therefore, this is one of the main reasons why we as Christians find we're driven into compartmentalization. We're driven into retreating into a private sphere and into, into quietism. Of course, the enormous uh, hubris of modern human beings has no limits. This is uh, taken from the um, an Economist magazine, and uh, I like it because it's a, it's a re- reimagining of the roof of the Sistine Chapel. You Remember the roof of the Sistine Chapel? God is creating man, creating Adam, and the finger comes over and the lightning bolt as Adam is created. But now... The picture has subtly changed. Now we have Adam in the middle of the picture with a strategically placed laptop. And the lightning bolt is going in the opposite direction. Now it's human beings who are at the center of the picture. And they have become the creator. There is no God. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. And therefore now we are creating artificial life. And... uh, The Economist magazine said, there will be mistakes on the way and suffering too, but technology once invented cannot be unlearned. We are as gods and might as well get good at it. Now, if that doesn't put a chill in your soul, I don't know what does, but it does tell us some of this astonishing hubris of modern man and of the Enlightenment view. And one of the heart of the idea of the Enlightenment was using secular uh, rationalism and science as a way of creating a new world it was a way of actually creating heaven on earth and it's interesting that this whole belief, this what's sometimes called techno-optimism, that we can use technology to create heaven on earth is really a Christian heresy and um, sorry John Gray says this, he says humanism is not science but religion the post-Christian faith that humans can make a world better than any in which they have so far lived. Humanism is the transformation of the Christian doctrine of salvation into a project of universal human emancipation. The idea of progress is a secular version of the Christian belief in providence. That is why among the ancient pagans it was unknown. So secular humanism has taken a Christian understanding of the the line of history, of of the move from the Garden of Eden and ultimately through into the new heaven and the new earth, and has taken that and has secularized it into an idea of secular progress through science and technology. And it's interesting that in an Enlightenment thinking, human freedom is conceived of freedom to, from, to break away from the constraints and limitations of the natural order. Nature constrains us. Nature limits us. Wouldn't it be wonderful to break free Well, we can with the technology. We don't have to be limited by our humanity. We can be greater than that. Unfortunately, as so often happens, if human beings are merely machines, then they can be exploited by other human beings. And so often, as technology advances, it is exploitative. And who suffers? Answer it's the weak, it's it's the fragile, it's the vulnerable just one area in the area of bioethics is what's happening in the global trade of organs. There is now a global trade of human organs. Across the world, organs are being bought, commissioned, transferred from body to body. And surprise, surprise, the organs are by and large being transferred from poor bodies to rich bodies, from young bodies to old bodies, and from female bodies to male bodies because um, man's power over nature so often turns out to be power exerted by some men over other men. That was the prescient words of C.S. Lewis back in the 1940s when he saw what the implications of the rise in technology would be. So what do we claim as just a neutral thing, science, technology, advance, actually becomes a means of exploitation, a means by which the strong exert power over the week. I think another force which has really affected our modern world is the rise of this idea that it is religion that is ultimately the source of violence and evil and uh, antisocial behaviour. It is religion that is going to destroy society. Where does that idea come from? It's an old idea. It actually comes from the Enlightenment again after centuries of wars that had, got, that had gone across Europe and Im, Im, immeasurable bloodshed, the great hope was that if we could only get rid of religion, then for, we could actually build societies based on rationality. Religion would wither away and peace would come into Europe and peace would come into the world. And it sounded like a great dream, beginning of the 19th century. Of course, we all do know then what happened. And particularly the history of the 20th century with the rise of Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and all these explicitly atheistic regimes who then proceed to slaughter and produce the biggest bloodletting the world has ever seen. You would have thought by the end of the 20th century, the idea that it was religion that was the source of the world's evils was for once and forever completely buried. And then what happens is 9-11 and the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. And all of a sudden, it's as though the 20th century is quietly airbrushed out of history. And now we have a new new narrative. And the narrative is almost a throwback to the old Enlightenment. It's religion. Oh, it's religion that's going to kill us. It's religion that's the danger. It's religion that is the source of all evil, as someone like Dawkins would say. What does Paul say in these uh, seminal verses in, in Romans? He describes the effect of human beings abandoned by God. And he says they changed the, f- the truth of God into literally the lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So the natural knowledge of God which is available to all people is being actively suppressed in humanity's pride and rebellion. And in the resulting spiritual vacuum, the human mind, in its futility and darkness, constructs belief systems or worldviews in the place of the truth. Those who replace divine truth with a folly created by their own minds are handed over, says Paul, to moral degradation. So the idolatrous belief systems make up what the New Testament calls worldliness, it's an interpretation of reality that essentially excludes God, and it excludes God from the business of life. And this is the world of the professions to which we are called, a world which is actively trying to exclude God from the business of life. So that's just uh, a rapid overview of some of the forces of why it's, it's, it can be difficult to live as an integrated Christian. Now, I just want to then move on to look at, very briefly, the four biblical perspectives. This was something that John Stott taught repeatedly about. And and, uh, he was something that I found immensely helpful and formative in my own thinking. And so I just commend it to you. Many of you will know this framework already. But one of the things that John Stott used to say is, Beware the proof text. Beware the one verse which is then used as a justification for action. What we need to do is we need to develop a full-orbed understanding of the biblical uh, message. And then particularly, there are these four different perspectives. They're like four different searchlights, all on, a, on the same area. And our task is to dig deep into these four areas in order to build up a, um, a comprehensive, and a thoroughly biblical understanding of whatever. And the, this perspective, this, this, this approach can be used for virtually anything in the modern world. Any issue that we wish to try to grapple with, then here is a framework to, to start from. It, it goes all the way back to the Church Fathers and to Augustine. It's not a new idea at all. But we start with creation. I think that in the modern evangelical world, there's a tendency to overemphasize some of these and underemphasize others. And I think the two which tend to be underemphasized are creation and future hope. And I think for us, as we work in the secular world, in professions of, of one kind or another, as we try to engage with the secular world, we need all four perspectives, but particularly we need to un- develop a deep and rich understanding of creation, of the way that God has made reality, and we need particularly a deep understanding of future hope, of what God's ultimate plans are. We need all four, but especially we need to emphasize those which are at grave danger of being underemphasized in our contemporary evangelical world. And so it's the God of creation who speaks ex nihilo. It's from the mind of God that the ultimate physical reality, but also the order that per- penetrates and pervades reality. And it's God, of course, who is seen in Scripture so much as the God who invades every aspect of the life, everything created by, from his mind and therefore part of his preoccupations and concerns. And as perhaps we all know, the big difference between Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, and all the other contemporaneous gods that were around at the time in the Semitic and Middle Eastern world, the big difference was not that Yahweh was concerned about what went on in the temple, not was concerned about right worship, Uh, That was entirely expected. All the gods were concerned about ways of worship and, and so on. What the difference was that Yahweh was also equally concerned with what was going on in the marketplace and what was going on in the human relationships, what was going on in the law courts, what was going on in every possible aspect of society. And so it's, for instance, the Lord abhors dishonest scales but accurate weights are his delight. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with a garment. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous, and so on and so on. The God of creation is intimately concerned with every aspect. And so what does God say to us as he looks at the city of London, as he looks at, at us today in the UK? What does he see? What does he say? I hate. I see. I abhor. As we try to get a grasp, and understanding of creation, what we need to be looking for is the creation order, what God has placed into the creation, the way that we are made, the way that everything is made. And there is both a physical order, a tangible physical order, but there is also a hidden, immaterial order, And that's the moral order that God has put into the universe. It's a bit like the grain that goes in the wood. It's the way, the grain of creation. There is a fundamental moral order. And so we choose to live our lives. Either you can choose to live your life along the grain of creation, along the moral order, and that's what the Bible calls the way of wisdom, or you can live your life across the grain, and that's called the way of folly. And so by understanding the moral order, the hidden moral order, we learn more of what it means of the way we're meant to live. We sang right at the beginning of the, of the day, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down to eternity. Those are the, that's the moral order. Those truths unchanged from the dawn of time are the truths of the way that God has created the world. And that's what we need to be looking for as we try to engage in the world. So, whereas we saw the Enlightenment sees freedom from the constraints of nature, Christian freedom is actually freedom, is not freedom from the fundamental order of the universe, it is freedom within that order. It is freedom to be myself. Freedom to become the person I was created to be. A completely different understanding of what it means to be free. But that's the message we have to give to the world, that if you really want to be free, then you have to be free within the created order, within the structures which God has made. And it's a Christian idea that the whole of unity is a cosmos, which means literally an ornament, a poem which reflects the character and power of God. And then human beings are made in God's image and yet made from dust. A paradox of glory and yet dependence. So much of the modern challenges stem from an impoverished and a distorted and a reductionist understanding of what it means to be a human being. It's a Christian insight that we need to care for human beings holistically. That they have physical, psychological, relational, Spiritual aspect, and if you want to care for people, you need to care for the whole of the person. That is a Christian insight, and it's, a, and again, a profoundly important insight. It's something we're battling for in healthcare against these reductionist forces that says doctors should just look after the body, but doctors shouldn't be allowed to talk about spiritual things. That's a matter for other people. And we as Christian physicians are saying, no, if we want to practice Christianly, then we have to care for the whole person. That's, that's part of the deal. That's what it's all about. That's what it means to be a Christian physician. And I'm sure the same kind of areas in many other areas of society. And we can learn from the creation order. So one of the things, the, the slogans that I've adopted is that making love and making babies belong together. It, it's interesting that in, because why is that? because that's the creation order. It's not an accident that the most profound way we have of expressing intimacy to another human being is also the way in which babies are created. That's not some kind of biological random fluke. That's actually the way it was meant to be, making love and making babies belong together. Interestingly, in the modern secular world, those two are utterly unrelated. Making love equals sex, equals a recreational activity allowed between consenting adults who can do whatever they like in whatever bit they like, as long as they don't hurt anybody else. Making babies, ooh, that's very different. That's, that's, you've got to be very responsible. You've got to take your folic acid and go to see the GP and make sure you have all your scans and so on. That's completely unrelated activity. And the median age of first intercourse for women in our society, is about 15 years, 15 to 16 years. And the median age of the first baby is 28 years. So there is 12 years plus of sexual activity when people don't want to have a baby. And because there's no relationship between the two. But in the creation order, making love and making babies belong together. Now of course there's all sorts of other issues about that and contraception and so on which we haven't time to go into now but um, fundamentally if you're interested in these issues there is a book on the bookstall called Matters of Life and Death which will take them further. So the again profound Christian insight of course is that everything is contaminated, everything is fallen. It's not just a beautiful creation. There is also evil in the world and that It's only that paradox of the greatness of humanity and its fallenness which has any explanatory power in the face of human history and human experience. And so one of the things I've come to the conclusion of, and it's not an original conclusion, is that we must not be ashamed of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. Because actually it's the paradoxes of the Christian faith which are the most powerful tool as we engage in the secular world so often we shouldn't try and play them down they're the most powerful tools we have in persuading a cynical and jaded world peter kreeft an american theologian has written a book about pascal and he says that this was pascal's great insights that he realized that as an apologist for a secular world it was it was the paradoxes and so pascal came up with this great phrase man is the glory and the shame of the universe I've found that in talking about the unique value of human life in secular media, it is sometimes the stories about the deformed baby, the terminally ill patient, the Alzheimer's sufferer, which has a greater impact rather than the stories of human prowess and achievement. It's the paradox of a strange and precious beauty in the midst of weakness and deformity and pain. So although the universe is fractured and broken, A crucial part of biblical understanding is that the universe still displays that moral order, the hidden grain. Its brokenness is a brokenness of order, not chaos. The moral grain is still there. But we need to persuade people that it's not therefore it's not just a metaphysical issue is there a God? But it's a moral issue. What does God demand of me? Am I fallen? that is, at the heart. But then when God himself breaks in, in the incarnation and, and the resurrection, it's his vindication and affirmation of the original creation order. It's God's final yes to the creation, and in particular to human beings. Because when God himself becomes a human like us, he's made out of the same stuff as us. He experiences the same things as we do. He shares in the stuff of creation. His body, like ours, is made from dust. And the gospel writers go to great lengths to stress Christ's full humanity. He's tired, angry, hungry, distressed, in agony. So our humanity is not something which comes between us and God. No, it's the very means by which God is made known. The humanity, this kind of humanity, is the way God wishes to reveal himself. And Jesus reacts when confronted with pain. Again, quoting from John Stott, uh, in John 11, verse 33, at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the Greek word, means literally he snorted in anger. Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. First he snorted in verse 33, and then in verse 35 he weeps from compassion, especially for the bereaved sisters. He felt indignation in the face of death and compassion for its victims. And John Stock goes on, Speaking personally, I long to see more Christian anger towards evil in the world and more Christian compassion for its victims. But in then finally, in the future, in the resurrection of Christ, we see the physical creation not overturned, but subsumed or caught up into a greater and richer reality. In Jesus, the second Adam, we see both a perfect human being and we see the new, the new one, the one in whose likeness a new creation will spring, the first fruits of those who are to come so it seems as though god the second person of the trinity enters into our space-time universe he takes on physical form his body is composed of dust carbon phosphorus elements cells mitochondria dna and then by the working of god's resurrection power those particular carbon atoms are somehow transformed into a new kind of reality And they're taken out of the space-time universe at the ascension. But God's intention is that at the end of the age, our physical bodies, by his grace and resurrection power, our physical bodies composed of carbon and phosphorus and mitochondria and the rest will also be transformed. And then as those physical atoms are transformed into the new reality, it seems that the entire physical universe will be transformed as well. Christ's risen body draws the human bodies of the redeemed community out of the old space-time. And behind our bodies comes the whole of creation, trees, animals, planets, galaxies. That's why Paul says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Why is this re- relevant? Why is that future hope relevant? Well, because we can only make sense of the present in the light of the future, we can only dare to act in the, li- in the present, in the light of the future. Mark this morning was talking about the exiles. The message to the exiles in Babylon was, "What? I have a plan for you." I will bring you back. It was a future hope. Lord Shaftesbury, the great English social reformer, said this I do not think that in the last 40 years I've ever lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. It's not amazing. It's the future hope which drove him on. But we need to learn from worked examples as we think about integration and just very briefly two examples which have influenced me one is Cicely Saunders a, a physician initially trained as a nurse and then as a physician who was confronted by the terrible question of what you do when you care for people who are dying, for a, for dying in agony from cancer and basically at that time the Christian doctor had two choices either you watch people die in agony or you kill them to, to stop the pain so what do you do, Christian Doctor, when you're confronted with two equally unacceptable options? Which do you choose? Which is the lesser of two evils? And what Cicely Sanders said is, they are both wrong. I must invent a better way. And she created something completely new, which is a way of caring for people that controlled the symptoms, not just pain, but all the symptoms, a holistic caring, which, which didn't involve killing And, you know, I think that often as Christian people, this is what we lack most. We don't lack faith. We don't lack knowledge. We don't lack prayerfulness. What we lack is creativity to invent new options, new ways of responding. So I want to pray for myself, pray for greater creativity. And let's pray it for ourselves, that God would give us new ways of responding to the challenges of the secular world and give us this ability to create New, uh, uh, new initiatives. Cicely Sauna's example really inspired me, and I became one of the people who tried to have the same kind of thing in caring for newborn babies. And so we used to provide palliative care for dying babies, trying to be the hands of Jesus, showing compassion, respect, uh, wonder, and gentleness. The second example is the work of Charnwood, which is uh, a personal link with mine because my mother... Grace Wyatt, now gone to glory, started this nursery in Stockport in the north. Uh, She was confronted by children of nursery school age who were profoundly handicapped and for which there was no provision at all and no care, and parents who were in utter despair. And she initiated, as 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 part of a Christian social action, a, a new kind of caring, of nursery school education, which integrated children with special needs with other healthy children in the community. Rather than separating them all out into a silo, she felt the, the, the vision was of integration. And uh, Andrew Greystone is actually chair of the trustees and is at the back, and if you want to know more about Charnold, I'm sure he'd tell you. But the, the values of this nursery have carried on since Grace has gone to glory. Demonstrating the unique value of each individual child, enabling them to reach their pet potential, supporting parents and seeing two healthy three year old children sensitively helping their profoundly handicapped friend of the same age uh, moved me to tears to see this wonderful sense of how collaboration and uh, Andrew told me the story of the little girl who had been playing with Matthew had no arms or legs and um, She'd come home and she was reflecting on it and she said, you know, although Matthew is little on the outside, he isn't little on the inside. Now that was an insight of a three-year-old. But it shows you again how a practical, compassionate Christian uh, engagement can be so powerful in our society. Uh, A model to me of Christian engagement So what are some rules of engagement as I draw to the end? Well, just very briefly, gentleness and respect, as in 1 Peter. Always be ready to give an answer for those who inquire, but do it with gentleness and respect. This, to me, was the example of Uncle John Stott in public confrontation. He taught that it was more important to engage Christianly, to engage in a Christian way, than to win the argument. Maybe you lose the argument, but you do it in a Christian way. It was he also who said, engage with the most difficult issues, not the easiest. He had a robust confidence that God's truth would come out. We don't need to shrink back from the difficult, the thorny, the challenging. I think in many areas, what we should do is we should act first, and then we explain in words what we are doing. That's often the pattern in the Bible. God acts, And then he explains in words. The problem is that action without explanation is fundamentally ambiguous. It's obscure. It's mysterious. But explanation without action is just theory. It's marketing speak. It's spin. And what we need is is to act and to demonstrate and then to explain why, to give a Christian apology to give a Christian rationale. We need to find language which is non-religious but communicates effectively. There's a great challenge to find language which is not immediately cast off as being religious. So, for instance, in our field of medicine, instead of talking about the sanctity of human life, we find it's better to say something like all human life is precious. It's helpful to find words which express... Cicely Saunders came up with a slogan you don't have to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. So finding the right kind of language language which is clear but not religious is part of the process. And then whenever we say that something is wrong we must immediately say and here is a better way. It's not good enough to just say it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. We must be always looking for a positive alternative, a Christian response, a way which enshrines Christian values, a better way. And then to close, how do we build the foundations of an integrated life? Well, for me, I had the immense privilege as a young medical student and junior doctor of being here in this church family and exposed to wonderful Christian influences. And the three Factors I think which made the biggest difference to me. One was the personal walk with John Stott, the the friendship, the role modeling that I saw in his life as an older Christian. The second was small reading groups and study groups. And the third was the encouragement to concentrate a study, to engage both with the Bible and with secular reading. So my challenge to you is... If you don't have these things, maybe you should be going out and looking for them, particularly if you're a younger person, under 30 here. Have you got a role model, an older Christian role model in the profession or in Christian leadership who who could build a friendship? Are you part of a reading group, a study group, where you're getting together to analyze and read and study books? And are you engaging personally in serious study? Because if you want to live an integrated life, It seems to me that is the way that we do it. And finally, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says these words after the description of what is going to happen, of the resurrection from the dead. God is going to work, but we can stand firm because we know it's not in vain. It's because of the future hope. That it's not in vain. He also says love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You know, from a human standpoint, it seems so often that love does fail. It seems so often we lavish love and concern in our society on individuals. And it seems that that love is wasted. Where did it go when you care for a dying patient? When you're involved in some social innovation which seems to go completely wrong? Well, Paul's words rebuke us and they remind us and they encourage us that actually love never fails. That is a statement of faith, but, but in some mysterious sense, the love that we show now is going, to, is going to become part of the new heaven and the new earth. Faith, hope, and love, these three remain. And so hope is to hear the melody of the future, faith is to dance to that melody in the present. May God help us to do that by his grace.